products are an art form. As with any art, the world of products includes creators, patrons, fans, business people, and investors. Product Hunt is a place where those different people connect to build and discuss products. Products are different from other art forms in that they are measured not only through the lens of design and beauty, but also through utility. From software to books to couches to toiletry, we all have products that have improved our lives so much that we feel a deep sense of connection and hope for those products and the people behind them. Ryan Hoover is the founder of Product Hunt, which is a product I have found tremendous value and satisfaction from over the years. He's also a host of Product Hunt Radio, a weekly podcast with the people creating and exploring the future. Ryan joins the show to discuss products, the process of creating something useful, and his investing strategy. Ryan also runs The Weekend Fund, an early-stage investment fund. Some recent updates from Software Engineering Daily Land. Podsheets is our open-source set of tools for managing podcasts and podcast businesses. We have a new version of Software Daily, which is our app and ad-free subscription service. You can find that at softwaredaily.com. You can find our apps in the app stores. The iOS and Android apps are getting a facelift and some engineering improvements right now, so it's a great time to send us bugs and submit bug reports to our Find Collabs. The Find Collabs is also in the show notes for this episode. We are looking for help with Software Daily on the fronts of Android engineering, QA, machine learning, much more. And the Find Collabs hackathon has ended. The winners will probably be announced by the time this episode airs, and we'll be announcing our next hackathon in a few weeks, so please stay tuned. Now let's get on with this episode with Ryan Hoover. Ryan Hoover, you're the founder of Product Hunt. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, how's it going, Jeff? It's going quite well. You are a connoisseur of products, and the spirit of Product Hunt allows other people to look at products in that same way. At least that's how I think about the product. So Product Hunt allows people to evaluate products like a film critic would watch a film or how a music critic would listen to music. How does your approach to product analysis compare to the work of an art critic? Hmm. That's a, I don't know if anyone's asked that exact question before. I think when I reflect on, you know, Siskel and Ebert back in the day, I used to watch their TV show. They would, you know, review movies and critique them. And, and the, the lens that they would apply would be one with a lot of deep knowledge and expertise around the film industry. And a lot of times they'll look at a film and, and be able to see things that a kind of average consumer maybe wouldn't see because they're just so embedded and excited about that, that space and that medium. And so I, I see Product Hunt, I wouldn't exactly compare it to a Siskel and Ebert for tech <laughs> in that Siskel and Ebert and, and a lot of those critics are actually very, I mean, it's in the name itself. They're very critical and in some ways to, to so much that they they are inside of, of negativity. I think Product Hunt is, is more about celebrating and exploring and, and having optimism around technology. And that is important because also a lot of the products that are on Product Hunt, they're really at their earliest state. These are projects or startups or or new ideas that are just being started. 
And ironically, they're also in their worst state possible. They just launched, they're the MVP, they're the V1. But that's also what makes it so cool because you, as as someone who might be interested in products or technology, it provides this kind of early peek into the future of what's being built and early ideas. And in many ways, the feedback that you see on in the comments and and things between the community and the makers that in many ways informs their roadmap and, and their future ideas as they start exploring and maturing the product further. So if I go to Product Hunt, I'm looking through all these different products. I want to sample them because I want to get a feel for these different products. It might be kind of like wine tasting. We all know it's subjective, but we're sampling them, we're developing our opinions for them. If I want to learn how to how to sample products like like you sample products, like how you think about things, what advice would you give me? When you're testing a product for the first time, when you're doing your product tasting, what are you looking for? Yeah, for me, I, I'll even go back to pre-product hunt. So one of the things I, I really enjoyed doing is I would browse AngelList, ironically, back in 2011, and I would explore and try to find new companies. And I wasn't investing. I wasn't looking for a job. I was just there to discover cool ideas and, and cool products to play with. And I would do the same thing in the App Store as well, both the US App Store, but also I'd switch over to like the Japanese App Store and kind of explore and see what was most popular in those regions. And for me, I found it just fun because it was almost like an exercise of exploring and trying to, to hunt and, and track down really cool ideas and, and things that would you know, maybe inspire new ideas of myself. You know, I pre-product and I had always wanted to start a company, but, you know, never had the idea until PH came around. And so for me, I think a lot of people who want to build products can gain a lot of value from understanding and just exploring, you know, the onboarding flows or playing with the different interactions or even just seeing the landing pages and how people market and communicate their products. A lot of that is building up you know, hopefully some learnings, just like your comparison to wine tasting. How do you be an expert at evaluating wine when you have tasted only a few dozen wines? You know, I'm not a wine taster, so I don't really know the space. But my assumption is you probably need to taste hundreds, maybe thousands of, of different wines to really build out your palate and understand the market and ecosystem of, of wine. There is so much advice around building products today. The, the classic Y Combinator advice of making something people want, that's a really durable piece of advice. It's, it's widely known at this point, which is great. But can you give us some very subtle product design advice? What's a piece of wisdom about designing a product that I should keep in mind that you don't see discussed very much? This, I think this is maybe being discussed more often, but maybe not so much in the past uh, prior two years, three years or so, is thinking about distribution from day one. So now as we have more and more people building products and, you know, if you look on product hunt, you know, today there are probably 30 to 50 companies being launched or products being launched. It's incredibly competitive and also consumers, you know, they're, they're constantly being marketed to. So to really stand out, you need to, of course, build something people want, but you should also think about how are people going to find it and how are they going to download, purchase, use it ultimately. And some of the most successful products, they often build growth into the product itself. Like there's a mechanic within the product that drives more user acquisition as more people use it. Because if you can't solve for that, even if you build something that people want, if no one knows about it, then you're also kind of dead in the water. 
And there's there's the old build it and they will come, build something people want and they will come is not really true. And maybe that that's true in a couple rare circumstances where something goes viral and, and people love it and it takes off from there. But fundamentally, you have to figure out how do you market and how to get users. And so I think that's an, a worthwhile exercise for people to go through before they even build their MVP and thinking through, okay, I have an idea. Here's what it might do. How am I going to get users? How, what's, what's the growth mechanism in the product? Or what's the distribution channel that I can exploit or take advantage of to get my first 100,000, 10,000 people? What's your biggest flaw as a product designer? I would say I'll answer that as, as a learning, I think. So there's a mistake that a lot of product designers or, or product people, whatever you want to describe yourself, anyone who builds a product maker perhaps, there's this common thread where some of the people who are most have the most pride and excitement around what they built, they, they, they want to make it perfect. And sometimes that manifests in the design itself. And this could be things like, oh, this, the pixels could look better here or there, or this user interaction could be cooler, or maybe we should add an animation over here on this thing, because that'll just be much, much uh, better for the user experience in terms of how it's perceived. And I think a lot of people fall into the trap of doing a lot of redesign work or a lot of polish. And polish can be really important. Sometimes it's that those subtle details that really make a product, especially consumer-facing product, really magical. But in many cases it doesn't make a big enough difference. And you'll see people, including myself in the past, where we've spent a lot of time, several weeks, sometimes months, redesigning features and redesigning components of Product Hunt or other products we've built that actually don't really matter. It's like the underlying mechanic is what really matters. And if we haven't really nailed that, no polish is going to make the product more successful or move the numbers in a meaningful way. And so I think Products doesn't have to be really careful with that and being, you know, don't get their ego wrapped too much into it where they spend all this time making the product look beautiful rather than prioritizing the, the features of the things that are going to make the business or the product most successful. There are many similarities between game design and product design. When you were building out Product Hunt, were there any early rules of the game that is Product Hunt that you wish you could have done differently? Yeah, yeah, I think you know, product and, and many consumer products are you could look at them from the lens of a game. And so, you know, let's take Instagram as a very obvious example. You have photos, each of those photos have likes. Uh those likes are also from certain people, their friends, sometimes maybe they're they're people you look up to. The likes are basically your points for each photo and and as a result, you'll see, especially some of the younger generation of, of people, they'll actually delete photos that don't get enough likes on Instagram. And, and it's become very much a game. And part of that is, is great. That kind of makes it fun without likes on Instagram, without those feedback loops, it wouldn't be where it is today for certain, but it it also introduces some challenges too. When you have things like that, that are quantified, it might actually introduce some, some negative effects as well. And an example of this going back to Instagram is, you know, if, if someone is posting something and they, they feel like they're not going to get as many points or likes as their friends, they may actually not post. And that can actually be a negative thing for Instagram. They want people to engage and share. And so when I reflect on, on product, there's some things that are, are really powerful. So the core mechanic of the homepage of Product Hunt is effectively a leaderboard. There are people that upvote products that they think are cool and interesting. And every day, these products effectively create a leaderboard of here are the top 10, top 20 products of that day. A lot of that drives engagement. People get excited without 
any kind of ranking, it wouldn't really be interesting also for consumers, for users. It'd be like, well, here's just a random list of uh, you know products. Instead, I can I can kind of explore and see what what is the most popular thing today that everyone is upvoting and commenting on. And so that's really powerful and that's important. But on the negative side, the challenge is that it also introduces a lot of competition and some negative effects where there are some makers, let's say, who might be number five on product hunt and they'll be really disappointed. They'll be like, oh shoot, I'm number five. I'm not number one. And it creates this unnecessary kind of disappointment among certain people who are are really eager and and thriving to get to number one. And so those are some of the competitive aspects of I think product sense homepage and sort of the game mechanics that both drive engagement but also introduce negative effects. And so it's something we think about. It's like how do we gain the benefit of competition and leaderboards without the negative effects of that? And how do you design an experience that can kind of uh, accommodate for you know, both the pros and and uh, reduce the cons. One thing that I would attribute your success to is a conscious balance between negative sum or zero sum thinking and positive sum thinking, usually erring on the side of, of positive sum. If I'm developing a product, I'm building a startup perhaps in Silicon Valley, how can I frame my mentality in, in the correct balance of positive sum and zero sum thinking? Yeah, I, I think there is this feeling, and I think it's naive, frankly, that a lot of people, they worry too much about their competition or they worry that, oh, this other company is building this other thing that's similar to my idea. Oh, no, I'm either... One, some people think, oh no, I can't compete. I'm just going to give up <laughs> on the extreme side. Others unnecessarily start stressing about it and saying, oh no, this company is, is doing something similar in my space. Now I have more competition. I think it's better to focus on executing and, and building out your vision. And you should certainly probably watch the competition if you're you're a serious company and and keep an eye on them. But in many cases, it's not the competition that's going to kill your company. It's usually you and that could be through a variety of reasons, which which I won't go into. And so when I think about you know zero sum or positive sum kind of dynamics, I think if we kind of go to the culture of Silicon Valley and much of the tech ecosystem actually is is a lot of it's very much pay it forward and a lot of it is very positive thinking in, in the sense that there's a number of people who have helped me throughout my career, giving me advice, taking time out of their day to support me and my ideas, especially when I was certainly a nobody. And that was something I really appreciate and, and in turn want to pay forward to other people as well. And so I think there, there's a general sentiment in Silicon Valley that I, I hope to kind of see continue forward where people are eager to help each other. And as a result, you know, hopefully you do, th- do so authentically, not because you, you seek to get paid back, but you also do get paid back in many different ways. The, the people that helped me early on, I feel in some ways indebted or or responsible or eager to to support them too in their their next efforts you know it might be months it might be years later but i think having that mentality of paying it forward can can really go a long ways and in some ways selfishly help you in the future do you have any unconventional views about how to do early stage investing given that you have recently started to become an investor yeah unconventional Let's see. Unconventional is interesting. It's it's a interesting word because there there's another similar word, non consensus, 
and it's funny, it's all the investors are talking about how they're non-consensus thinkers and it almost becomes ironic when everyone is non-consensus. For me, I look at a lot of, so the areas that I'm looking at are maybe different areas than other people are looking at in, in some some cases. And, and so some of those spaces that I'm really excited about are really based on platform or consumer behavior shifts. And if, if we go back, I'll use Instagram, as I mentioned earlier, as an example, Instagram, of course, is, is a massive company and it rode the wave of mobile. If you look at the growth of, you know, iPhone and smartphone adoption at the time that, that Instagram launched and also the rise of the app store and the number of people downloading apps in the app store, they hit the market just at the right time. And they did so also at a time when cameras were not that great. And I think a lot about Instagram is one of many examples where they were able to build in a category in a platform shift at just the right time. And I try to think of what other spaces are there that are exhibiting these types of platform shifts. And one of those that I look at and, and really excited about is audio, audio and voicing. We're, we're on a podcast right now. I'm sure many people right now are probably listening with AirPods, perhaps maybe in their ear. AirPods are becoming more popular and Apple's unlocking new f- functionality like hands-free Siri interaction and things like that. We have over 60 million homes in the US have a, a Google Home or an Alexa device in their home. And all of these, the, the, this adoption of this new hardware is one platform shift, but it's also a consumer behavior shift where we're starting to see more people interact with technology through their voice or you know consuming through their ears. And so I think a lot about that as it as it relates to different opportunities in in startups and and these opportunities also become ways for small incumbents or rather small startups to compete with incumbents who like Facebook's for example or the Instagrams of the world how do you compete with them when everyone else is competing for the home screen already in the realm of the voice interface we have this Google Home Amazon Echo dynamic do you find this more painful or less painful than the iOS and Android dynamic? Painful in what, what sense? General friction. Yeah, right now, and, and sorry to clarify, you mean between developing for, for Alexa and for Google? I would say all across the board. I mean, it, you know, you have the developer frictions of, of iOS and you have developer frictions with Android. They're slightly different. But the main friction is if you want to switch between phones, I think, uh, if you want to switch between operating systems, you know, you have a friction. Or I guess you could you could even extend the, the voice discussion. I mean, the fact that you can't really use the best voice interface, well, for my in my book, the best voice interface, which is Google, on iOS is deeply problematic. You know, so we just have emergent frictions from the voice interface, you know, I guess it's not exactly a duopoly or you know oligopoly whatever you want to talk about it as but you know the fact that you can't just say hey assistant like do something for me you have to kind of go to these different like assistant categories is that a feature or a bug yeah the comparison with ios and android is a good one when it comes to that i mean we have amazon apple google of course you know even facebook with portal as well they're all all playing in this game of, of controlling and creating a new platform for voice interactions. I think that the biggest friction right now from a developer or a startup perspective is really discovery. And, and this is, this is really tough right now in the space. And there's a lot of people, you know, excited about voice and audio, but they also say, well, there's no real killer app right now for voice or audio outside of, you know, maybe playing music, checking the weather, like the basics. And so we haven't yet seen sort of our version of Instagram 
on audio and voice yet. However, I also I also see that as certainly an opportunity and, and certainly something that these big companies are going to address. It's it's imperative that they help their their developers and the people building on their platform get discovered and be successful. Otherwise, their platform won't be nearly as valuable or as impactful as as it could be. So it's early in, in those that friction point of getting discovered is certainly a problem. But I also have hope that that will be solved. And once it is, once we have our version of the app store that's actually usable by consumers and and adopted by consumers, then it'll be a whole different game. And actually, I'll, I'll take a step back too. I think there's a lot of skepticism around audio and voice as a category to invest in or even build in because of the discovery problem. But I also, and, and also just what kind of use cases are there? Like what types of things will we build? Some people just don't, maybe aren't as optimistic that we'll, we'll unlock all these new types of innovative ideas on audio and voice. And I like to reflect on, you know, mobile back in, let's say mid 2000s, it would have been impossible to predict for, you know, the average consumer or anyone really impossible to predict that Instagram would, would exist or that Uber would be built on this or Instacart or all these other companies that are now massively successful. We would have never predicted that back when when mobile was super nascent. And I think the same is going to be true for voice and audio. I think in three to five years, we're going to be, I think, shocked and surprised by what people create and, and how it changes people's interaction with technology. Anchor was acquired recently, and Anchor was acquired as a podcasting platform, but many people may not know Anchor started as a kind of audio Twitter and I think I've actually found Anchor on Product Hunt the first time I, I interacted with it, and it didn't really gain traction in that first version. It was a cool idea. Some people tried it. I didn't try it. I tried it myself. I listened to it a bit, and I thought it was it was a cool idea. I was really happy when they pivoted to podcasting, and like basically, you know, what they did was like, let's just make a podcast host that actually works pretty well and has a nice UI and makes podcasting simpler, and they just they just crushed it. But begs the question, why didn't that first version of Anchor work? Why didn't it gain traction? Yeah, that's an interesting question because one side of me and, and you know, hindsight in the future will we'll, we'll know if this is true or false most likely is that it's unclear if maybe the timing was off. I think when Anchor launched, it was a mobile app and, and it still is primarily mobile, but it was a mobile app that you'd open up, you would then select different audio messages to listen to and then respond to. And the interaction was all on the screen. And I, I do wonder if if more of our, our behavior and if if more of, let's say, iOS in particular, the the API unlocks to enable new things like hands-free Siri commands and other things like that, that actually may be a better time for someone like Anchor to create that type of experience where maybe it's not screen first, but it's audio first and voice first. So part of me wonders if if maybe the timing was off for that type of interaction the the other reality is that back then also with that type of interaction you're kind of competing you can only use anchor when you can listen to it and so that's when you have headphones on or you're in a private space and you feel comfortable listening and unlike text-based messaging which has its own pros and cons but one of its pros is that you can consume and communicate through text pretty much anywhere. You can be on the bus, you can be at a party, you could be you know, in the movie theater in the back texting with a buddy and you can't do that with audio and voice. And so I think that the nature of that heavily decreased the amount of engagement that you would see simply because 
95 plus percent of, of people's day is probably around other people where they don't feel comfortable listening and contributing with their voice through that type of interface. So those are some just initial thoughts. I'd be really curious to, to hear from the Anchor team on, you know, maybe a retrospective on why they kind of pivoted, but their their new direction is clearly getting some traction and, and they're really focusing on the podcast space, which I think is really wise. Spotify seems to be making a play at becoming the YouTube for podcasts or something similar to that. Is that what we actually want as the market? Like, do we want the medium.com of podcasts or the YouTube of podcasts? Or do we do we actually want like the WordPress of podcasts where people can kind of do things as they want and not have this centralizing force? I, I mean, you could look at it from two lenses. You have one podcast creators. So what they really want is distribution is typically the, the number one thing. Just how do I get discovered? The same thing that anyone who's building a product has challenge with. How do I get users? In this case, how do I get listeners, subscribers, and so on? The other big challenge they have is is monetization. So, okay, now I have a podcast. I have a, a few listeners. How do I make money out of this? And what is nice about the integrated approach with with Spotify and kind of where they're going is they're able to solve both of those challenges because they're vertically integrated. They can help with discovery. And, you know, Spotify also is really powerful data science team. I mean, Discover Weekly, which is something I listen to every single Monday, is always filled with great song recommendations. And so presumably they can use a lot of their same talents to help surface and uncover podcasts that might be relevant to various listeners. And also they they have an ecosystem of people with credit cards on file that would be easier to monetize than, you know, if if you were your own WordPress site trying to collect well, one, acquire users and listeners and then try to collect credit cards and, and convert that way. So I think on the podcaster side, there's a lot of really interesting dynamics at play that can support their goals. On the listener side, the listener side, I'm not sure what the biggest problem is, to be honest, because a lot of people complain. It's like, oh, I can't find any good podcasts or, hey, I want to discover more podcasts. I'm not exactly sure that's the biggest problem for listeners. I think a lot of listeners have people that do regularly listen to podcasts. They have a rotation of, of, let's say, two, three, four, maybe 10 podcasts they listen to. And that fills most of their time. I don't think a lot of podcast listeners are, are waking up every morning with a burning desire to discover new podcasts. So I'm not so sure that's like the biggest problem for consumers. I think most of what consumers just really want is something that's low friction, good quality content, whether it's something they know about or something they, they are introduced to in the future. And they want to consume it without friction, which friction is in the form of you know, clicks in like time, but it's also in the form of money. And so going back to the Spotify example, if if I'm a Spotify subscriber and it doesn't cost me anything to to listen to podcasts because I'm already a paying member, then then there's no more additional friction and it can solve for some of the monetization problems with with podcasters potentially. So I don't know, it's a really interesting space. I I hope that there's a lot more competition and, and there is, thankfully. In fact, it's great that Spotify is investing in this because Apple has been the dominant player in podcast discovery and distribution. I think they probably still in the US, I don't know, you may know this, but somewhere around like 80% of listens are, are typically on, on iTunes through Apple. So it's good to see some competition enter the game here. One of the big factors in podcasting taking off and almost entering the mainstream or entering the mainstream to the extent that it has entered the mainstream today is the fact that 
cellular bandwidth got so much better, it's it's not painful to just press play on a podcast and start streaming it instantaneously. It doesn't really hurt your bill too much. And eventually that will happen for files as large as long video files. And it begs the question, will we ever see video podcasts? What do you think? Well, I guess we kind of do have video podcasts, right? With a lot of podcasters do the, the Y Combinator podcast is a great example where they distribute on YouTube and they they call it a podcast, but it's basically a video interview. Right. I'm saying and, I'm saying literally the same distribution format over RSS. We we actually, I mean, RS, you know, you can you can actually subscribe. I, I believe, or at least you could subscribe to video podcasts in the Apple Podcasts app. They were called they were always called podcasts, but the video format never took off, or it hasn't taken off yet wonder if that same decentralized RSS distribution mechanism will ever work for video. I don't know. I think it comes back to how do consumers want to consume content and where did they do it already and, and how would this be dramatically better? And so YouTube, of course, massive in the US when it comes to discovery of video content. A lot of that includes like podcasts, like the Y Combinator one I mentioned. So I, I don't know. I think that's even a broader conversation around different distribution channels and decentralized distribution channels too, ones that may have less to no censorship and, and some of the concerns that some people have expressed around YouTube censorship or Facebook or Twitter censorship. I think that's a really interesting trend to keep an eye out for, especially for those that are you know in the consumer space as well. Now, Apple has not done anything with its dominance over the podcast market. It's anyone's question as to whether that's deliberate or it's just due to the fact that they're focused on other things. Let's say I put you in charge of Apple. I replace Tim Cook with you. Would you spend any time looking at the world of podcasts or would you stay completely focused on these markets like self-driving cars and augmented reality? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll add a giant asterisk to start with that. Clearly, the Apple team has a lot more data and information, and they're probably way smarter than me. So there's probably good reasons for all their decisions. But I do find it kind of shocking, actually, that they're not investing more in certain areas. And so podcasts, podcasts is certainly one area where, for their bottom line today, podcasts is, is not meaningful. However, it's also a strategic competitive advantage for them to be the dominant player. And we're starting to see Spotify really eat into that. I think, if I'm not mistaken, 20% of new podcasts are, are listened to in the US are listened to on Spotify. And that's up from basically 0% almost from a few years ago. Now, it could be off in that number, but it's something substantial considering that Apple has been like really one of the dominant leaders to date. And so if I was in charge of Apple... I would try to find really smart, small teams to tackle various problems in, in one of them, or, or rather investing further into existing user experiences, one of them being podcasting. And I think the area I would I would want to personally explore around podcasting is, I mean, I have an extreme bias around this, but it would, it would be around community and how do you, communities can be such a strong lever point to bring people together, to drive engagement, to help with discovery and really connect the creators of these podcasts and consumers and listeners together even better. And that's something that's, if you establish it and build the right experience, it's incredibly defensible and also enhances the experience itself. And furthermore, Apple's in a unique position where they they own the iOS, and so they can do some really interesting things potentially around the OS level that others couldn't do by incorporating more community and more social interaction around podcasts. So 
for me, I would I would dedicate a relatively tiny, tiny piece of of capital. I mean, Apple has I don't know how many billions of dollars they have sitting in a bank, but I would dedicate more of that to Skunkworks seems to focus on building out those experiences with the ultimate goal of just creating more defensibility, not about revenue, but just really how do we continue to maintain our position? Three years ago, there was a bubble in chatbots. Were chatbots just unnecessary or was it too early? Yeah, I think chatbots is, was a really good example of, it wasn't a platform shift, but it was kind of like a new interaction paradigm that people were really excited about because one, it was it was somewhat novel, somewhat new. It was unclear how consumers might interact with chatbots. And it was something very, very worthwhile exploring. Chatbots are really, a lot of that work and experimentation is, some of it's still valid, some of it's useful. For example, a friend's company, Octane AI, they they started off as initially more of a general purpose chatbot. And they've now evolved and kind of pivoted into more e-commerce focused chatbot to help ultimately just increase conversions, increase sales. And they're, they're doing well in that kind of very core niche. And by niche, I mean, it's a massive niche, but it's a very focused approach has been effective. But I think a lot of the work over the past few years or so in that space is really going to help apply to voice and audio interfaces. The, the interaction of, being, uh, of interacting with a chatbot via text is very similar to interacting with your voice. And I think we'll see some of those learnings being applied to audio and voice and and also as, you know, the the ability for NLP and, and things like that to, as that gets better, that also make audio and voice more powerful, you know, driven by the foundation of, of chatbots, which started a while back. One emergent trend that's a downstream result of the gig economy is this rise of these cloud kitchens where you have basically restaurants setting up in shipping containers and only selling to people who are ordering on food delivery services. How big do you think the cloud kitchen industry will be? Yeah, this is this is really interesting. I, I'll admit I've not followed the space super, super closely. So I'm sure there are smarter people around this this category, but I was I was actually recently speaking with a friend about cloud kitchens and in more generally just about the use of land. We have a lot of land sitting there vacant. For example, parking lots are often very vacant, uh, especially in certain businesses or churches, which are only open during certain hours. And combine that with cloud kitchens, which are designed to be more efficient and, and optimized for delivery of food. It's it's interesting to see that that kind of evolve both those two trends of like how do we better and more efficiently use our land, but then also how do we service customers more efficiently and uh, ultimately improve our mar- margins through cloud kitchens. And I think I don't have any data on this, but I'm this is more anecdotal. I think more people, well, I know more people are ordering <laughs> and having food delivered. Um, I don't know what that that growth rate is or what that number exactly looks like, but for me personally, I order in every night. And I don't like cooking. And I think a lot of people in, I think around my generation in the US at least, that's that's a normal behavior. And as a result, we're going to see more and more people, I think, ordering and, and expecting food to arrive or arrive warm and fresh and efficiently in their home. And that will just increase, not only the, the demand for that will increase, but then as a result, the need for cloud kitchens and more efficient delivery and logistics will also be a growing need within the market. So yeah, I don't have a whole lot of deep thoughts around that, but it's certainly a trend that I expect to continue, see continue forward. And it's also changing the way that that restaurants operate too. When when you think about how restaurants 
historically have had to operate during certain business hours in a single location that can't move with a staff of people that are certainly costly. When you remove a lot of that, those fixed kind of expenses or needs, it really changes the dynamics of how food can be created and the margins of that food. What are the other nascent downstream effects of the gig economy? I think there's certainly a need around... Actually, there, there's a YC company that I spoke with in the, the most recent batch, which is is called Keeper. And they're focused on freelancers primarily and how do they help them save money on their taxes. So an example is a lot of people who are freelancers, and I've spoken to many of them, they they start freelancing, but they don't really think anything about taxes at all. They're really just learning for the first time because maybe historically they you know, had a full-time job and a lot of their taxes was sort of handled in many ways for them because... They had money taken out of their paycheck and so on. Furthermore, many of these people don't even know that you can expense certain things. And and so what Keeper provides is a really simple way for these freelancers to mark and uh, in real time effectively different expenses. So it'll notify you if it detects in your credit card that you, let's say, picked up gas at this gas station. It might ask you, hey, is this a business expense? You know, assuming like you're an Uber driver, for example. Another example might be you, you're a freelancer and you travel, you, you take a flight somewhere. It will ask, hey, is this expense? Is it a personal expense or, or a business expense? And basically, it's just trying to, to help these freelancers, one, educate them that you can expense these things, and two, make it more efficient, easier for them to manage their taxes. And so I expect to see more of those types of tools emerge as we see more freelancers and more kind of gig economy workers enter the market. And, and you could name a number of other things that, you know, a typical full-time employed WT employee might benefit from that these freelancers and contract workers don't have that will they'll need support in. We do have this increasing variety of types of career paths you can chart or rotate between. You can jump from the gig economy to being an indie hacker and set up a small business to working at a a corporation for a little while after you've set up your small business and it's just generating you a little bit of cash, but you want to kind of go to the big leagues for a while, then maybe you want to go back and set up another small business. And across the spectrum, the range of financing options still seems somewhat limited. Like you'll often, you probably have this experience as an investor, you often meet people where if you could buy an option on their future career, you would. But, you know, either the, the startup that they're working on right now is like not great or perhaps, you know, they're at a big company and they're just kind of like, you know, that they're going to take the plunge at some point and you wish you could like just give be like, hey, take five grand and uh, like give me an option on your on your future. Do you have, you have any ideas for for how the gradient between those kind of two polar ends of the, you know, salary person versus the, you know, the venture backed equity world what other kinds of financing options could be explored yeah yeah i think i think i'm super fascinated by that space and and so we're seeing you know traditional venture capital is designed to invest in companies that could have a a massive rare outcome so 100 million in many cases is going to be on the low side but they're looking for billion dollar plus outcomes in many cases and the reality is most businesses won't become that and that's that's by design that's actually not a bad thing in fact, we, we, we're going to need to see a lot of failures for a few outliers to really succeed. And so that's not necessarily like the worst thing that can happen. It's, it's part of the model. But 
there are a number of companies that just never, either they shouldn't have raised venture capital or they just never do because they're, they're not designed to be, you know, a venture scalable business. And so there, there are firms like NDVC and Ernest Capital and some others that are kind of emerging, trying to create something that's in between, something that isn't bootstrapping, but it isn't VC. And it's something that is designed to provide an outcome for their LPs and, and a return of capital but also support entrepreneurs who might create a really meaningful 10, 20, $50 million business, but no unicorn type of exit. So I find that category really interesting. But you you also touch on an even more nascent area, which is backing people and investing in people. Something that um, one of my friends and, and former teammates, Eric Torenberg's talked a lot about this on, on Twitter and actually wrote a post about ISAs, income sharing agreements, which is sort of related to to that category of things. You know, we see things like Lambda School and Flock J and some others using ISAs to essentially give people a kickstart to learn in their career. And, and if they're successful, then they get money back. So incentives are aligned. I think that same model could apply more generally to a lot of different things, whether it's education or, you know, just someone's career success. That said, I, I don't know. It's it's a little bit un, unclear on like what that would look like, and also how do you ensure that that model is is truly creating the right incentives for both parties? Because you certainly don't want it to feel like this investor in in the next. If someone invests in me and and I'm giving away for the next decade ten percent of my net worth, for example, <laughs> that, that's a lot to give up, and I just need to make sure that that's equitable for both parties. And and so there's a lot of kind of unknowns on how that would work out. But I'm, I'm super curious to learn more about different ideas in that space. Your fund is the Weekend Fund, and the Weekend Fund seeks to invest in what smart people are doing over the weekend. What are you working on during your weekends? <laughs> I guess I'm working on the fund. So yeah, the I named it Weekend Fund after you know, brainstorming a bunch of different ideas. And it stood out to me because it, it means a few different things for me. One of them is, is certainly that quote, it's actually from Chris Dixon. It's always kind of resonated with me in that, you know, the, the thing that people do on the weekends sometimes is, is to paraphrase, sometimes those are things that everyone else will be doing, you know, as their day, day job in the next decade or so. And that kind of reflects a lot of my experience with Product Hunt. Another reason why I named it that is Product Hunt was a, a nights and weekends project. And it wasn't intended to be a company in the beginning, but it was something that I was just really passionate about and wanted to experiment, explore. And so there's a lot of, and that's sort of the third reason why I named it that is I didn't want to create some sterile sounding VC name like Hoover Capital. You know, <laughs> I think there are enough sterile sounding VCs. That out one actually there. has a pun um, in it though. Hoover Capital? Yeah, you're like, I'm hoovering in the capital. That's, that's a kind of good one. I don't know. I don't know about that <laughs> one. <laughs> probably, okay, probably terrible. I'll I'm pass. sorry. I'll pass on that. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I was I was hoping to one not name it Hoover Capital and make it make it friendly and different. And so for me, my my weekend sort of side hustle is is the fund, ironically, I guess. And uh, I spend a lot of nights and, and weekends on it, and I'm enjoying it. It's it's very relevant to what I've been doing at Product Hunt, but certainly with a different lens. Instead of exploring just new products, I have to now explore businesses and think through the business holistically, not just the product. And and so I'm loving it. It's been really fun. My first case study in the uh, the synergies between podcasting and investing was Jason Calacanis, and I think I, I think Jason Calacanis remains one of the most 
underappreciated, perhaps un- underestimated figures in Silicon Valley, which I think is is to his benefit in many ways. What are your biggest lessons from Jason Calacanis? Yeah, so I've been listening to his podcast since I was in college, actually. He's been doing it for, I guess, a decade longer, maybe. And he has a unique skill and talent in that he he's a great writer. He's a great conversationalist. He's really a good entertainer uh, as well. And he's been able to do that, but also be a strong investor. I think he's invested in six or seven different companies that are, are unicorns or, or greater. And so I, it's hard for me to say like what I've learned from him because a, a lot of a lot of the people, whether it's podcasts or people I've known for a while, I think you kind of learn through osmosis and you kind of don't maybe recognize some of the learnings explicitly. But for me, I think I've admired just how he's he's been able to consistently um, create a brand and, and certainly a brand that that might rub some people the wrong way. <laughs> he he does have an ego, and I think he'll admit that. But it's also part of what makes him authentically him and and unique and entertaining and personable. And so I, I appreciate his authenticity in that sense. And and he's invested in the podcast, but also the events. He's really created these different properties that built a brand and, and an audience. And when you have an audience, sometimes that's the hardest thing and the most important thing because you can then segue that into other really high value transactions like investing, for example, into companies. And you see somebody like Harry Stebbings who sort of looked at the the This Week in Startups model. I, I don't I don't know if he actually you know was directly inspired by it, but he managed to to scale conversations with investors in, in quite an interesting way. Do you have any lessons from Harry Stebbings in the the twenty minute VC story? Yeah, he's he's done a great job of very quickly building a name for himself. And he did so by really just, I mean, for lack of a better word, just hustling. He uh, did a lot of manual things that includes, you know, responding to emails, tweeting, getting, doing podcasts. You know, I don't know how many he's done. Probably, I wouldn't doubt if he's done over a thousand podcasts. And he's just done so consistently and with excitement and passion. And a lot of that can go a long ways. I mean, now he, he started the fund, you know, after maybe a couple of years of doing the podcast. And he wouldn't have, of course, been in a position to do so prior to that. And so I think he's just a prototypical example of someone who's just worked really, really hard and spent a lot of time because he's really passionate about it. And and it's really paid off for him. Now, we see some major shifts in media consumption right now. Obviously, we could talk about just Jack Dorsey going on a bunch of podcasts or the fact that we're speaking on a podcast or just, I guess, Netflix or YouTube. In any case, we can tell that media preferences are shifting away from terrestrial TV, but something like, I think 50% of US ad budgets or close to that are still spent on TV. Because we also have, we have the rise of subscriptions. That's another kind of trend. Do you, do you have any other broad takeaways in in how how you anticipate media consumption changing in the next five to 10 years? I think one of the more interesting trends right now is we're seeing some experimentation around, some people describe it as synthetic media or digital celebrities or whatever kind of buzz buzzword you want to use. But companies like Brud, which has a little Michaela, and uh, there's actually a company I invested in that's Stealth right now that's exploring synthetic media. And what this is and, and what's interesting about it is, you know, for those that don't know little Michaela, there's a, an Instagram account over a million followers now 
where it's not a real person. It's a CG woman named Michaela, little Michaela. And it's an Instagram account, almost like it's as if it's a person, just like a regular person posting photos and, and stories and whatnot. And Brud, the company behind this is really building out sort of a, an ecosystem and characters just like you'd see on on Disney for example or any kind of like cartoon network they're really building out a cast of characters but unlike historical media and entertainment companies who you know primarily focused on television they're focusing on the place where people are hanging hanging out more and more which is you know social networks and that's where people hang out and so the the underlying I guess goal is very, very similar. It's providing entertainment and creating a character, but doing it in a very different way. And by leveraging the distribution of Instagram and other social networks, others like Twitter, of course, and and Facebook, and I think we'll see more around TikTok, we'll experiment with this. That's one side of it. Then the other is the technology side. And how do you incorporate these this sort of CG characters in a way that sort of blends with with reality in a unique way? And so We'll see more of this. I think we'll also see more companies leveraging the IP of existing people and celebrities, but doing it in a way that's that's driven through synthetic media. And that could be both visual synthetic media like Little Michaela, but it could also be audio, audio synthetic media. And, you know, I met with a company that's in Techstars right now. There's a few of them kind of exploring this area of how do you replicate someone's voice through technology without them ever being involved? And so... They showed a demo of Kevin Hart saying some words that he never spoke. And we've seen different, like the Obama with, uh, I'm forgetting his name right now, but there's a, a viral video with Obama, for example, speaking some words that he never spoke that looked like him, that sounded like him. And I think we'll see this technology being applied to existing celebrities and brands and people that will allow them to scale themselves and leverage their brand without taking their time and effort from doing the actual work themselves, which is really fascinating to think through. These distribution channels that you're discussing, Google, for example, Google was a was a or still is a, a, a huge distribution channel, and Google has leveraged that by monetizing search advertising. They've built a huge cash cow. Facebook has dominated social advertising. They've created their huge cash cow. Advertising has really really high margins, and yet the future seems to be influencer marketing, and Nobody is able to capture the influencer marketing world in a centralized, aggregated fashion. There's a lot of like smaller influencer agencies, but there hasn't been an aggregator of influencer marketing. Do you have any theories for why that is? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I've I've seen many different companies that are attempting to aggregate influencers and you know, I, I don't know how big the biggest one is transparently, but they're they're relatively all all small. It seems like there's no meta aggregator for influencers, and I, I actually don't think there will be because if you actually actually look at how just the entertainment industry is also fragmented, there's there's no winner that that owns all the artists or you know in music or all the actors and actresses you know in film, and so I don't. If you look at the trends and the history of that space and, and try to apply it to influencer marketing, I think we'll probably see similar types of dynamics. It's not going to be a winner takes all. And I think part of the challenge in particular with influencer marketing is it's also a space with a little bit of gray gray area to it in the sense that everything from laws being changed around disclosures of advertising to the platforms themselves introducing maybe some restrictions 
For example, if Instagram tomorrow decides, you know, actually we don't like influencer marketing, we're going to ban it entirely. You have to, you instead have to to advertise through our platform. We're going to build our own influencer marketing kind of mechanism or marketplace. There's sort of the, that that risk as well. In some ways, if there was a leading influencer marketing kind of marketplace, it would actually incentivize someone like Instagram potentially to compete even harder because they don't want anyone to be able to, to own too much of the market that could affect their business. What can Silicon Valley learn from Los Angeles? Oh, I think, you know, I'm actually in LA right now. So I live in San Francisco. I'm spending all of March and April in LA and, and I love it here. It's, it's a really cool spot. I think that the area that something that, that Silicon Valley and I think generally tech can learn from LA is, is it's the place that is, you know, in the US, it's best at storytelling. They really understand storytelling. They understand branding. And a lot of, I think, historically, technology, the industry has, hasn't has focused as much on that. It's been a lot more about technology, innovation, marketplace dynamics, platforms, things like that, which are also really important and, and intellectually stimulating to explore. But sometimes a company will fail or succeed based on its ability to create a really strong brand and a message that resonates with people. And if you look at how technology is also increasingly shaping the culture of the world, that's also what LA and the entertainment industry has done, you know, for decades is really shaping culture. And so I think there's a lot we all can learn in the technology industry from LA and and I think people like like Troy Carter, who's someone I've spoken to about Product Hunt, who kind of bridges the the divide between music, entertainment, and technology? People like him are, are really good translators that can can speak kind of both word worlds here in LA. You are a podcaster yourself. Has podcasting conversations changed how you have conversations outside of podcasting? I don't know. I don't think so. I, I've been doing the podcast. Well, we started the podcast initially at Product Hunt in, I think, 2014. And that was just because, you know, I love podcasts and thought it'd be kind of fun. And then we put a pause on it. And then we just rebooted it about six months ago. And I really enjoy it. I think it's also one of the few sort of vehicles to unlock information and insights from certain people who never write. There's a number of, of really, really smart people who have a lot of knowledge in their head that they might share personally one-on-one with people but they're never going to write a blog post about it. They either don't like to write or they don't have the time. But if you get them on a podcast, you can unlock a lot of that information and insight from their own head. And so I'm sort of going off on a tangent, but that's one reason why I love podcasts and would like to see you know, more and more people, especially those that haven't been on podcasts before, do them more frequently. But I don't know if podcasts have shaped how I converse. In fact, I try to when I do the podcast, I try to actually just make it more of a conversation like I do in real per- in, in real life and not too structured and not too too much like an interview format. So my style might be a little bit different than others. Ryan Hoover, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great talking. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Wow. 